This program brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com is suitable for mature audiences only and may contain explicit sexual information. This interview was recorded at the One Taste Center in San Francisco on July 1, 2008. Welcome to A Taste of Sex, guest speaker interviews, coming to you from the One Taste Urban Retreat Center in San Francisco. For those of you new to the show, One Taste is an organization committed to developing awareness in all of those areas of our being where we've shut down. We offer workshops and practices designed to bring more connection to your life. And every Tuesday night, we bring in a guest educator to share their perspectives in a fun and interactive way. You can join us live at 1074 Folsom Street in the South of Market neighborhood of San Francisco. Welcome to A Taste of Sex. My name is Shane Metcalf. Tonight, I will be speaking with Anadea Judith, author of Waking the Global Heart, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. Anadea is the founder and director of Sacred Sinners, a groundbreaking writer, thinker, director, and spiritual teacher. Her passion for the realization of untapped human potential matches her concern for humanity's impending crises. Her fervent wish is that we wake up in time. She holds master's and doctoral degrees in psychology and human health with lifelong studies of alternative medicine, yoga, mythology, history, sociology, systems theory, and mystic spirituality. She is considered the country's foremost expert on the combination of chakras and therapeutic issues and on the interpretation of the chakra system for the Western lifestyle. She spends much of her time on the road teaching with workshops and trainings offered across the US, Europe, and Central America. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. So Anaday, can you just give our listeners a little bit of a clue of how you actually got involved in this work? Like, what was the, what was the turning point in your life where you decided to devote yourself to these studies? Well, people always ask me that, like, when did I have my big wake up? And in terms of studying alternative spirituality and healing and alternative community, there never was a big wake up. I was always there. And I sort of had to go from the fringe element back to the straight world and get my master's and my PhD so that people would, and so I'd have some authority that people would listen to me. And what I talk about is nothing that I learned in those places, uh, but it sort of gave me the authority to talk about what I didn't learn there. (laughs) And so I I didn't really have any big wake up that that's the way it was. I just was always there. You're waiting for culture, the rest of culture, to wake up. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it said that uh, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Right, isn't that a William Gibson? Yeah, I I think think so. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah. Well, that's a, that brings us to an interesting topic we were discussing earlier, and we were looking at in really an inquiry into the intersection between sex and sustainability mm-hmm. around how do we take our personal or interpersonal relationships and where what's the crossover to being an activist, being a change maker in the world? Okay, so there, here, before we go there, I can even say that was a wake up for me in that having done personal healing for, I was a psychotherapist for 20 years and studied all kinds of healing, there was a wake up where I got tired of, adre- uh, tired of bandaging the wounds and decided to stand up and address the slaughter. Hmm. 
You know, if like babies are being thrown in the river and you pick them up downstream, you got to go upstream after a while and stop it at the source. So that was my awakening. So when you ask about sex and sustainability, first of all, I think sex is one of the things that makes things sustainable. It certainly makes relationships sustainable because it renews people's energy with pleasure. It renews their intimacy. It renews their connection. So it's actually one of the things that makes uh, our ongoing relationships sustainable. And when we talk about getting to a paradigm of the heart versus, you know, I, I talk about moving from a paradigm based on the love of power, which is an organizing principle based on a top-down authoritarian parent-child model, to the power of love, that's an organizing principle based on relationship. And so the question is, how do we make those relationships sustainable in a modern world where everything around us is changing at lightning speed. So how do we make those relationships sustainable? And, and I think we also talked about the difference between sustainability and really thriving. Yes. And that sustainability is, is something of a downer. You know, it's like I, I heard somebody ask, once ask, like, who would want a sustainable marriage? Yeah, you know, we exactly. Want, we, want it, we want excitement. We want thrills. We want the juiciness of life. Right. As I was saying earlier that I think sustainability is an important concept, but it's not a sexy concept. It doesn't get people excited about being sustainable. So I guess, so the new question is then how do we take, how do we create in our relationships something that is vibrant and thriving that we really want to, to preserve? Well, first of all, if we look at what makes things thrive at a time of immense change and stress, and there's a lot of stress going on in the world as, as the old, old system changes, is what survives through that is what's flexible. If we stick to rigid dogma, no matter what it is, then we can't survive the changes. So we need um, a resilience. We need an elasticity. We need to be flexible in our ideas and the way we do things. So our relationships need to have an element of flexibility to be able to last through these changes. And what do you see as some of the signposts that we are actually making this transition, that we are actually giving birth to a new world as the old paradigm is fading away? Oh, there's many. There's many. Um, first of all, we have, through the Internet, a way of connecting people that we have never had before. And that is enabling a kind of collaboration worldwide that has never been available, that now the companies that are working with that kind of collaboration are finding it saving them millions of dollars because they can put out on the Internet that they're looking for a scientist that has studied some obscure little thing about how to attach an adhesive to some sort of substance, and somebody in China just happens to have spent their life studying that and has the answer. And instead of paying you know, a staff of 400 research scientists to to research that, who that wasn't really their thing, they get just the right person for just the right amount of time. They pay him, and he can do exactly what he's, what he's doing. So we have a way of organizing. We have a way of connecting with people far flung across the globe in a way that we learn more about them in real time. And that fosters a kind of compassion and concern. Uh, that they really are people, and they really are alive, and they, you know, we can we can make relationships, literally make relationships. Fritjof Capra, the author and physicist, and in a speech 2002 at the Bioneers Conference, he said that 3.4 billion years ago, life didn't take over the planet by combat. It took over the planet by networking. Exactly, by symbiotic, symbiosis, working together in concert, cooperation rather than competition. So what do you see is the greatest challenge that we're facing? 
oh my God, the challenge is that our environment is degrading uh, at enormously rapid rates, and the systems that we have going, we it's like a, a train going 90 miles an hour, or the ship, the Titanic, you know? It has its own momentum, and we can see the iceberg up ahead, but our society and its beliefs and its practices have such a momentum, the challenge is can we turn it around in time? So what are you doing to help us turn it around? Well, I've written this book, which is really an overarching thesis about looking at where we are, because I think all the little fixes of, you know, sustainable energy and hybrid cars and recycling and all that, those are all important, but they're only fixes. If we don't change the paradigm in, what, in which we're living, they are temporary fixes. They're Band-Aids. And I'm not putting them down, just like I'm not putting down sustainability. That's important. But I think we have to go beyond that. And so the way I look at it is, and I've looked at, you know, the whole thrust of history up to the present, looking at the mythologies that people lived by that gave them their belief systems and how we lived this way and how we changed from our hunter-gatherer to an agrarian society that farmed and how we changed from a farming society to empire, which is what we've been living in, and how we're now at one of those cusps of changing to a new form of society. And what I see is that cultural evolution mirrors the uh, steps of an individual, a baby, an infant, toddler, you know, sibling rivalry. Our 5,000 years of war have been our civil, sibling rivalry. And at this point in time, we are cultural adolescents. And this is irregardless of whether somebody's 60 or 15, you know. This is where the culture is at. It's in its adolescence. We are reaching our adult size in terms of population. We've been growing since the beginning of time, and now we're reaching a population saturation. We have had everything supplied by mommy and daddy <clears throat> for us, including all the rules that tell us how to live. Uh, we are narcissistic and indulgent and suicidal and we have this incredible libido that's been repressed, and now we're experimenting with it. Men and women have lived separate lives, and now they're coming back together and working together in, in the home and in the workplace in a way that, like, teenagers start to relate to the opposite sex again after they play separately through most of their middle childhood. So there's many parallels, and that as adolescents, what we're facing is our initiation into adulthood, into planetary adulthood. And that initiation is going to be brought on by the very byproducts of our civilization, by global warming and environmental destruction and social injustice and, you know, uh, heaven forbid, nuclear war, but the threat of that, um, you know, by all the things that are going on, each one of which is forcing a reorganization of priorities, of values, and of organization. What do you think is the the uh, the factors in this equation that give you the most hope that we can actually tip the balance and that we do make it in this century? Um, one of the things that gives me the most hope, and this is put out in a book by Paul Hawken called Blessed Unrest. How the, larger, is, how the largest movement in the history of the world came to be and why nobody saw it coming. Is that that book? That's his subtitle, yeah. And he really charts out that the largest movement on the planet right now and in the history of humanity is people in non-governmental organizations volunteering, by and large, to work for social justice, environmental sustainability, peace, consciousness, you name it, those, all those kind of things. Um, and no one's commanding this movement. No one, there's no president saying, go do this and making it law. Right, I think he says that there is not a white vertebrate in charge. 
Exactly, exactly. There's not a head honcho in charge, and people are not generally well-paid. Uh, they're doing it out of the love of their hearts. They're doing it out of their own will and their own you know, uh, desire to save and serve what they love. And that is encouraging if we really look at that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I, I actually heard him present on that in 2004, and at the time he had estimated between 200 and 400,000 organizations. And just last year he had to update it, and it's, defin- it's more like one to two million. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about that is the work that we do here at One Taste really is about connection. I would say it's more about actual connection and real relationship, authentic mm-hmm. relationship, more than it is about sex. Mm-hmm. You know, sex yes. is the, one of the portals that we use because there's so much charge around it mm-hmm. and there's so much disconnection around it. But we're looking at how do you have connection with the people in your immediate life. And the question that I've been having is, you know, I'm 24 and I've grown up half of my life in a digital world where the Internet is second nature to me. Mm-hmm. And how do you have virtual connect- connected living? How do I actually have deep, authentic relationships with the 400 friends that I have on MySpace? Right. You know, how do I actually deepen my capacity to care so that they actually are my friends and they are not just my virtual friends? Well, much of those relationships rest on communication, right? You're in communication in some way with these other people, whether you put out a blog or whether you're sending email back and forth or you're sending videos or podcasts. Those are all forms of communication. And communication is one of the things that creates intimacy. It's one of the places where the inside comes out. In other words, I don't really know what's going on with you unless you tell me, right? And then you're bringing your inside out and you're saying, here's what I feel, here's where I'm afraid, here's, you know. And so as we have more and more communication, we're actually expanding our consciousness. To have a conversation with you right now, the things you say are going to expand my consciousness. I hope the things I say expand yours. And so it's a different kind of relationship. I think we have to take this narrow archetype for relationship that we have been handed in this culture, which is a relationship of a heterosexual you know, man-woman unit that gets falls in love at 20 years old, gets married, has a batch of kids, and stays together for their life for the sake of the kids so they can raise them and give the farm to them, is a really old-fashioned archetype. And yet, too many people are using that archetype for gay relationships, for relationships where they're not having kids, for relationships where they're all done having kids and they're still sexually viable and want to go out and live and they're 50 years old and their kids are grown and they're not doing that anymore. We don't have to have those that archetype. And that archetype doesn't, um, it doesn't hold for modern relationships for a lot of them. I think it's fairly good for raising kids. But so many, we're not even having as many kids. So we need to expand our possibilities of all the different forms that relationship can take. And what I see happening in the world where that is the ruling archetype is people try it on and then they say, well, you're not right for me because I don't feel good in this relationship. And they don't stop to question the form of the relationship. And then they get rid of you and they plug in a new person and try to have the same kind of relationship. And that goes on for a few years and then that doesn't work. And they say, well, that's because that person wasn't right for me or I outgrew him or her. And still they don't stop to say, is this the right form of relationship? We're going to take a quick break. 
I'm Shane Metcalf, and we're speaking with Anadea Judith. Listen to A Taste of Sex, Erotic Poetry Reading, a companion program to Life in an Orgasm-Based Community. It's open mic night at One Taste San Francisco, a weekly audio program on personallifemedia.com. We're back with Anadea Judith. My name is Shane Metcalf. Over the break, we were talking about generations and the, gen the baby boomers' role in establishing a really strong self and kind of I-centric value system where they were able to break free from the rigidity of kind of the 50s school mentality. And can you speak a little bit about that, how that process happened? Yeah, if we go back to the 50s and before, the social norm was to do your duty and to fulfill your role. So a mother was supposed to be a good mother. A father was supposed to be a good provider. Um, people did their roles and didn't give a lot of thought to their authenticity. Then the boomers came along and, you know, the whole birth of consciousness and all, and we started going to therapy and saying, well, who am I really and what do I really want and what's true for me and, and uh, started to really start to harvest and create and develop our authenticity. And the boomers have been described as the me generation and there certainly is an element of narcissism in that, no doubt about it. And, you know, and they've been faulted for that and rightly so, but there's an important piece in developing that connection with an internal eye that then they raised their children knowing that there was an authentic child in there and gave them the freedom to be individuals. And I think the younger generation has grown up with that, not knowing, just taking it for granted, that was normal. Well, I've heard the kind of narcissism of the boomers called boomeritis. Yes, exactly. It's what Ken Wilber yeah. calls it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, I think some of the following generation suffered from that because we were so narcissistic and we were doing our own thing and some people abandoned their children because their own thing dictated that and the children suffered. But I think by and large, it was an awakening of the I, which then enables us to recognize the authenticity in someone else. And only when people are really in their authenticity can we have genuine intimacy. Well, and it's an, an interesting question because the I see the narcissism passed on to me from mm -hmm. my own parents and mm -hmm. in my, my amongst my generation. It's like we may be the most self-centered cult generation that's ever existed. I mean, we have no other generation has had so much self-promotion. It's like you know, you talk to any young person today, and they probably have five different websites describing themselves. Yes, and promoting promoting their brand of themselves. Yeah, and what and, do they put out on MySpace? But the music they like, and the clothes they like, and the you know books they read. And right, and so we've we have this ability, you know, I, mean, I mean, it's an interesting mix. We have this enormous amount of self-indulgence and self-promotion, but we also have this ability to connect with more humans, more people from a greater variety of different lifestyles than any other generation before. And so it's like the question is like, how do we, how do we reconcile these two? How do we actually use them to work together? And, and also I think, learning from the mistakes of our parents' generation. Yes, and each generation has to do that. You know, our generation was the one that was, you know, going to jail their own kids because they were a part of the peace movement. 
you know, um, you know, or or disown them because they smoked marijuana. You know, I mean, the, the, the parents, the, that generation gap was pretty big. And so I think every yeah, generation. There was some, some big, there was some serious chains to be broken there. Serious chains. Yeah, serious awakening. And the other one that was between men and women, where, you know, the previous, you know, my parents' generation, women were so oppressed. I was part of the generation that just as I was growing up, women were starting to awaken. But I had to do a lot of fighting for my rights. Um, whereas I think the younger generation is, has that, I mean, they, 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 it's a non-issue, you know, that men and women have some equality. And I think race, too, that they're, they're much more comfortable with equality in races, whereas our generation had to really fight for that. So you said, how do we reconcile the difference between well, how do the we, indulgence I mean, and the worldliness? Yeah, I mean, it's like, how do we leverage our, our ability to connect with so many to create, the, to create positive change? Well, if you, look at how, if you look at a child growing up, when it's an infant, it doesn't know anything about the world. And its whole world is just this immediate, the mother, the father, and its needs. And then as it grows, it starts to become aware of its family, its brothers and sisters. And then it goes to school, and it has its classmates. And then it grows up through school, and it starts going to social studies, and it reads about other cultures. Oh, I'm an American. Yeah, no, there's Indians and Chinese, and this is what they do. And, and so as the child grows, the uh, consciousness expands to include a larger and larger community, if you will. So as culture has grown, you know, we used to live in tribes, and then we were in cultures, and you were a Greek, or you were a Roman, or you were a Christian, or you were a Jew, and you were really identified with that, and not that that's gone away completely, far from it, but we are becoming a global culture. And so we're at a stage where our consciousness includes much more than it ever did. Your consciousness, I'm sure, includes a much more awareness of other people in the world than mine did when I was at your age just because of the tools that are available to you that were not available to me. And so you have a kind of consciousness that we didn't have. And given that you're still young, you're going to grow from that consciousness for the next 20, 40, 60 years. Who knows what you're going to do with it? That's exciting. It's really exciting. So we're on the, birth of our, we're on the verge of our planetary adulthood. That's really what's up for us. And that's what I think is more sexy than sustainability and getting to a sustainable culture. That's just like, so we can stop the bleeding and take a breath. But that we are on the verge of our planetary adulthood. And I think this initiation, I have a saying in the book, evolution is the God's way of making more gods. And that our initiation into adulthood is an awakening of our godlike powers. And right now we have godlike powers that, you know, when we can, when we can blow up the planet, when we can change the gene pool, when we can change the climate, planetary, those are the powers of, of you know, the, the stature of a god that we can affect that much. But we don't have the maturity to go with it. And so to realize that we have all these tools at our, our, you know, at our fingertips, that we have a spiritual revolution that is harvesting consciousness and all that that's capable of, that we can go to the stars, that we can create most anything we want, that is the beginning of having godlike powers. And the initiation is going to give us the maturity to hold those powers wisely. So what do we do to help this process? Uh, what do we do to help it? We work on ourselves, first of all, because we can't live in this culture without sustaining some wounds from it. We can't 
even if you had parents that were mindful and conscious and raised you as well as they could, just being in this toxic environment in the advertising under the current administration, you know, these things give us wounds and we perpetuate those wounds if we haven't healed them. So I think the first step is we have to work on ourselves. One of the things I say is that we are being asked to play together in a grand symphony on this planet. And a musician who plays in a symphony practices on their own before they play with a symphony. So we have to do our spiritual practice so that we have enough, enough maturity to play well with others. And then we're ready to play in the symphony. So the first thing is heal ourselves of our wounds and develop our own spiritual practice. Whatever that might be. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting saying spiritual practice. I have a friend who doesn't consider themselves spiritual at all, and yet I consider them to be a very awake person and a very concerned and engaged person. And so, how would we? How would you communicate the same message to somebody who is you know atheistic or, or does not does not use the kind of spiritual terminology that we are using? Well, spirituality does not necessarily mean religious. So whether somebody's an atheist or they believe this or they believe that or they don't believe. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm clear about that distinction. I was just yeah. kind of giving that as a broad, as a kind of a broad range of cynicism of, of right. any of these terms. I think spirituality is, come, you know, in some ways coming from our own moral authority rather than someone else's, where we have internalized our own moral codes of what's right and wrong and what's healthy and what's benevolent and what's harmful. Um, and that we have a connection with something larger. If you want to call that spirit or God or goddess, fine. If you want to call that humanity or nature or you know evolution, I don't really care what you call it, but it's something larger than ourselves. So do you think that this, this maturation process we're going through, that on the other side of it, as when we reach that, that will be reflected then in our technology, our media, even our sex. You know, as how is the the man the maturation of our ourselves? How does that actually change these other spheres that we operate in? Well, one of them is that we have more free will to create what we want, and we have all the tools. We're not just passive recipients of what was given to us. That's the way it used to be. And you went into your father's business, you know, and your father went into his father's business. And you didn't question that. You just did as you were told. Uh, we now have the free will to create what we want. We can create, uh, you know, destruction or we can create glory. And that's an exciting prospect. Really exciting. That's what you get with adulthood. You know, once you move out of the house and you're on your own, you get to do what you want. You can stay up all night if you want. You can take drugs if you want. You can, you know, you can do what you want and suffer your own consequences for good or bad choices. And so we're going to be in that learning curve as we experiment with new ideas and new ways of living. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing in community. We're pushing the edge and we're experimenting. And we are the experiment. We are the laboratory. Sometimes when I'm hanging out with a group of peers, you know, one of the things that I that like arises in me is it's like oh wow we're we're strategizing about creating the future that we want instead of accepting the future that's being handed to us absolutely beautifully put beautifully put yeah and in that way we become activists rather than pacifists with a with a v you know passive people not pacifist which is peaceful but you know uh, that's why we become activists because we actually can we we become responsible meaning that we have the ability to respond 
because we have enough power. People today have more power, individuals have more power than we have at any time in history. You have the power to go where you want, to do what you want, to wear what you want, to eat what you want, to say what you want for the most part. And sure, we have you know this government that wants to crack down on dissidents and things like that, but we still you have the power to get on the internet, to put a bumper sticker on your car. Well, yeah, and, and I hope that our listeners are actually hearing this for themselves. I mean, you are one of the most powerful humans that have ever lived on this planet, is what you're saying, right? That's right. That's right. And so what are you doing with it? Yeah, exactly. And we've been given everything that our ancestors had to create. The roads are already built for you. The cars are built for you. The factories that made your clothes. The, you walk into any restaurant and all you have to do is just pick what you want to eat that night and somebody prepares it and brings it to you. These things that our ancestors used to have to slave over. I mean, the average person lives as well as kings and queens of old. The average person today. Not, not the poor, but, you know, the average person today gets the wine that, you know, is, you know, that a king and queen of old would have saved for their marriage ceremony, you know, and we can buy it at the 7-Eleven. So um, we have more power. We have more that's given to us. And I say, why? So that we can now serve and give back. Just like a child takes from the parents for the first 18, 20, whatever years of their life, they get fed, they get clothed, they get you know, a home provided for them, they get schooled, they don't have to provide any of that. But adulthood is where you start to give something back. That's beautiful. If you had a message for my generation, for the Y generation, I'm 24, you know, the today's young people, what would that be? I would say that for the first time in history, and this is partly because of technology, you know more than the adults. Uh, it always was that someone who had done something all their life was more advanced at it than someone young. You know, there's a famous Mose Allison song, uh, a young man ain't nothing in the world today. Well, that's different. The young people have their hands on the dials, and they are more technically proficient than anybody in the previous generation for the most part, and they can dial up a new reality mm. out of their imaginations. You know, we can create it on YouTube. We can make a movie of it. We can talk about it. We can create ecstatic events. Well, Anadea, thank you so much for joining me today. It was it's a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. To hear this and other great podcasts, log on to personallifemedia.com and please visit us at onetaste.us. Thanks so much. great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.